Well, good morning again. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We will continue this morning looking at chapter 3, verse 10, as we unpackage Paul's doctrine of humanity, if you will. Paul here speaking to what we talked about last week, that we are now indeed new creation. We are a new mankind. And as a consequence, we then live that reality out in the way that we engage in activities with each other and with the world and the positions that we hold and the things that we say and do and indeed what we don't do as well. And this is an important passage for us. Paul is going to be speaking to us today through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about this great transformation that takes place in the redeemed, a transformation that I think all too often is minimized and not understood. And as a consequence, the church languishes under the impressions that uh, we are not much better off than we were before we were saved. Uh, But Paul believes that the transformation that has taken place is indeed radical, transforming, and that we are, as he would say, new creation in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at that theme today and continuing to unpackage the idea of progressive sanctification and what that looks like in the life of the redeemed and how that works for us. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Paul writes as follow a passage now that has become familiar to us. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It's interesting to me that verses 1 through 4 are really a manifestation of what the new mankind can do. The other mankind can't, can't do any of those things in verses 1 through 4, and in fact, there's no inclination to do them at all. There's no desire, there's no interest in them. But as the redeemed of God, we are now equipped to do the very things that we're called to do because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit that continues in our lives. Verse 5, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, and slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Paul here speaking to the practice of mortification in these passages here in verses 5 and 8 in particular. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, another aspect of mortification, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 
a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Well, for Paul, it's interesting that what drives a believer's life is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, it's not our purpose that drives our lives, but rather the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who works in us to accomplish God's purpose for our lives, which is what? A holy and sanctified life that reflects one's union with Christ in a very tangible and demonstrable way. So it's not purpose that drives us. It's a purpose, of course, but it's God's purpose. And the title of my message today is A a Vivification-Driven Life. And this word, vivification, it's hard to say, but it's a word that's part of our lingo, if you will, a term that was very familiar with the Puritans. They like to talk about it. John Calvin spoke of it frequently, and I'm going to be quoting him about it. But the idea that we live in this way that demonstrates the reality of our conversion, and this is so very important for Paul. The idea that we are new people for Paul is essential to the basis for which we now live our lives and interact with the fallen world. And the Puritans understood this, and they often spoke of both mortification and vivification as present realities in the life of the redeemed. Of course, we know that mortification means to put to death, while vivification means the act of giving vitality and vigor to something. There's some interesting synonyms for this word, one of which is animation. To animate something means to bring to life. Dr. Frankenstein brought the dead body to life. It lives, he would say in the story. He animated it. And we too, who were dead in our trespasses and sin, enslaved to our sin, separated from God, dead in the clearest sense of that term, understanding the the full impact of its meaning upon us in the context of our spiritual condition, were brought to life, we were animated. And that animation continues into our ongoing Christian life. We continue to live in the reality of that new life. We continue to live in the reality of that sustaining, ongoing infusion of power that we get from the Holy Spirit. In fact, another word for vivification is to invigorate or invigoration. And so this is important for us, and it gives us a sense in which Paul now has an expectation that the reality of this transforming work will be played out in the way that we do certain things. Indeed, it serves as the basis for the call to mortification. Those who are mortifying are also living in the context of a vivified life, if you will. They are demonstrating the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit within them as they put sin to death. This will also play out in the context of how we relate to others and the barriers that are broken down that are part of the natural man based upon a whole litany of things as we know from verse 11, this renewal that we speak of, this vivification breaks down all of the social constructs and barriers that are used by the world to create paradigms that are not biblical. We see this happening in the world today, and it's fascinating to me that the world, and and, and rather the church, has bought into the world's lingo rather than the biblical language that speaks to what happens to us when we are saved. That transformation transforms, if you will, the lives of people. 
A renewal takes place. Paul will speak of this in verse 10. But this renewal then results in people acting and thinking and talking with people in a manner that was different from what they did before. One who was a racist outside of Christ now lives in the newness of of Jesus Christ. And as a consequence of that, that sin is dealt with. The vivification of his life by the Holy Spirit compels him to move away from his prejudices, his discrimination, his racism, and to embrace other people in the context of God's love, demonstrating to them the mystery and the wonders of the gospel. Rather than embracing and buying into the world system, the Christian moves away from it and embraces the reality of their new humanity. And for Paul, that is just so important. He wants the Colossian believers to understand this. He wants the Colossian believers to live and demonstrate the reality of their conversion in real and practical ways. How do we know that? How do we know that that is what Paul would want? Well, I'll show you how we know. Turn to Philemon with me. Philemon is a companion epistle to the book of Colossians. Philemon was a very wealthy businessman within the church in Colossae. The church actually met in his home. He had a person who was a slave in his household named Onesimus. And by God's providence, Paul and Onesimus met while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. It's unclear how that happened. We don't know, but we know that they were together. And in all likelihood, it was Paul who led Onesimus to the Lord. But Paul would write to Philemon with an expectation that the reality of the vivification of his life was demonstrated in the manner in which he would then treat Onesimus. Now, I don't know what Onesimus' skin color was, whether he was white or black or whatever. It doesn't matter. But he was certainly within a different class than was Philemon. And Paul writes, and we're just going to read here for a moment, um, beginning with verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective, look at this, through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So Paul was instrumental in Onesimus' conversion, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Now, Paul is not embracing the doctrine of free will. He's simply communicating that he would act in accord with what his will is now, which is as the redeemed of of Christ. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave. Now look at what's happening here. But more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. 
But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. It's interesting that Paul basically says, I hope that you do what I say because I'm going to show up. (laughs) Get your house ready, I'm coming. Well, he ultimately, we don't believe, makes it there. He's shortly thereafter uh, killed and martyred. But nonetheless, you can see here what Paul is doing. Paul is writing to Philemon, a regenerate businessman in Colossae who has a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran off with some of Philemon's money, apparently, fled to Rome hoping to get lost in the big city. No one could find him there, but by God's good providence, he runs into Paul who preaches to him the gospel and God saves him. That salvation results in a transformation of Onesimus. And so what does Paul do? Onesimus, I want you to go back to Philemon and I want you to accuse him of being a racist and I want you to call him all sorts of things and I want you to join a bunch of organizations and I want you to march around his house and I want you to beat him up and I want you to protest and to defund all sorts of things so your rights can be amplified and you can be protected. Not at all. In fact... It's interesting to me that Paul does not deal with Onesimus in the context of his slavery, but rather in the context of his regeneration, in the context of his new birth, in the context of his vivification, of the indwelling work in the Holy Spirit that is going to cause Onesimus to go back. Now, now this is going to be hard to hear, but he's going to go back to Philemon as Philemon's property as he would have been characterized at that time, and to lovingly embrace Philemon in the context of their binding together in Jesus Christ, and to seek Philemon's forgiveness. And Paul is saying to Philemon, don't do what your rights entitle you to do with him, which would have been to have sent him to the lead mines in some other remote location where he would have died a horrible and horrific death, but to welcome him back as a brother in Christ and to forgive him and treat him as a brother in Christ. Now, it's not clear if Paul is saying to to Philemon, free him. There's some language in here that could be construed that way, but that's not the point. And indeed, Paul says nothing to Philemon about the other slaves that he would have owned. There's nothing there about it at all. Paul doesn't write to Philemon to change the social construct of the day. He doesn't write to Philemon to beat him up about being a slave owner. He doesn't say anything about it. Other than with regard to Onesimus, what he is expecting is that both Philemon and Onesimus are going to live out the reality of their conversion by the way they treat each other. Onesimus isn't going to claim his rights. He's not going to call Philemon a bunch of bad names. He's not going to engage in some social activity that demeans and undermines Philemon's business. He's going to come back, and Philemon is going to, in Christ, welcome him, embrace him as a brother, forgive him, and accept him as Paul has instructed him. Why would Paul do that? Because that's how the redeemed of God act. 
That's what the redeemed of God do. That is the power of the gospel. The transformation that takes place in Philemon and Onesimus is a direct result of the working of the Holy Spirit within both of their lives. They have been saved by God for a purpose, and that is to stand out as shining lights in a darkened world, especially in that context. Now think how that would play in Colossae. Think how that would, be, how that would look in the church itself. I'm assuming, and I think it's safe to assume without adding to Scripture, that there were likely other slave owners in that church. There were other slaves in that church. We know that from looking at verse 11 in chapter 3, where Paul says there are no slaves, there are no, there are no context in which that now matters anymore. And so the resolution of any tension between Philemon and Onesimus was not based upon critical race theory or, or social justice or anything else like that. It was based upon the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which creates in us a new capacity, a new quality of life that allows us to embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and to live that out before others. That's what happens here. That's what Philemon does. It's really a remarkable letter. It's, letter. it's not written like other epistles. It's kind of, it, there's, there's, it's almost humorous in some ways. Paul saying, hey, you do what you want as he twists Onesimus, Philemon's arm. You can hear it cracking almost as he's, as he's pushing, as he's compelling Philemon. Remember, he's now, Onesimus is just not a slave, but he is now your brother in Christ. You know, it troubles me that in the social gospel construct in which we live today, that there are people who are so invested in their rights that they're willing to advance them over and above their relationship with people that they call brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. They're willing to destroy, to demean, to slander, to abuse in order to advance their social agenda while naming the name of Jesus Christ. This is unbelievable. This is quite remarkable. And I tell you what it means. It means that what they're communicating is not of Christ, but of the world. It's a secular solution. It's not the gospel resolution. And so for Paul here, this idea of vivification plays out very practically in the epistle of Philemon. And also then ultimately as it would, as we will see in verse 11 and following in verses 12 through 17, in this practical demonstration of the realities of what a redeemed life looks like. Well, this word vivification is not a word that we hear often anymore. I doubt that you used it in a sentence last week. It's like the word isthmus. We rarely say it. But it's an important word. And it's a word that we need to understand but it's because it's part and parcel of Scripture. And so this term vivification implies adding life. And this is what Paul means when he says what he does in verses 9 and 10. 9b, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now remember, self refers to, to man. It's, 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 the, it's the idea of a, of a category, a, a participation in mankind in one of two categories, either the unregenerate or the redeemed. There's only two categories. There's only two groups of people in all of the world, the unregenerate and the regenerate. Having been taken out of the world of the unregenerate, having been saved and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ through the gospel, Paul now calls them to do what naturally would come out of that, and that is in verse 10. 
to put on, as he says, the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So this term vivification implies adding life, quality, or energy to something, and that is what Paul is teaching here in verse 10. The idea of giving life, vitality to the new you in Christ, living vitally in your new identity and capacities. Calvin used the term in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, and his meaning is one of the most commonly used today. Calvin would say this in terms of defining vivification. This vivification is the strengthening and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live a righteous and godly life. It is the God-led growth of a Christian's spiritual and moral character. Let me say it again. It is the God-led growth of a Christian's spiritual and moral character. I'm fascinated by the fact, and I'm discouraged by it as well, that within certain circles of evangelicalism, that there are those who are embracing their anger, who are embracing their bitterness, who are demanding reparations, who are demanding radical transformation of the culture in order to fix their hurt. Rather than living out the reality of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit within them, they embrace the very thing from which they've been saved as the premise and the predicate for advancing their cause forward. I would submit to you that these people do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I think the book of Philemon teases that out. Calvin would further note that one of the effects of sanctification, and sanctification meaning to be set apart, is in fact vivification. We are certainly positionally sanctified in Jesus Christ, all of his work given over to us. God sees us complete in him. We don't do anything more to add to that. What we do is a product of the fact that we are now new creation in Christ Jesus and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, and as a consequence of that, we now live a vivified life. We live a life that reflects the reality of our conversion. We're not doing this in order to gain more merit. We're not doing this to make God happier. We're not doing this in order to, to somehow feel satisfied in and of ourselves, to have an occasion to be faith, to faith in our faithfulness, but rather to reflect the transforming work of Jesus Christ in our life by living out the reality of our conversion in all circumstances of life. The Puritans would ultimately capture the idea of vivification by saying that we live coram Deo, before the gaze of God. And of course, we can live that way now, because we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we live the reality of that conversion out in a very practical and real way. Paul speaks of it in terms of renewal. We see this in verse 10. And have, and have put on the new self who is being renewed. Now, the NASB uses the word who in that verse. I like the word which, however, and used in other translations because I think it speaks to the quantitative change that is internal with regard to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, and have put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So this renewal is ongoing. It is progressive. See what's happening? So this, this picture that Paul paints for us is 
one in which we are now giving life and energy to our Christian life. It is what we are ultimately doing. You want something to do. Pastor, can I please have a list? I, I just, can you just give me a list? I need a list. <laughs> baby steps. I'll do the baby steps. All right, you're going to get a list. But the list isn't a list that you take any pride in. It's a list that just comes out of the qualitative change that is being worked within you on an ongoing basis. It's interesting to me that the picture that Paul paints for us in this passage is a renewal that is ongoing. That means that as a new believer, I anticipate as your pastor, as can your fellow redeemed believers with you, see that you're going to be growing because the renewal is always ongoing. This new humanity progresses, it develops. The gospel continues to impact your life. The gospel is not a one-time event that simply changes you and leaves you. You have enrolled in gospel university, if you will, and all the courses are about the gospel. Every single class you take, whether it's a mandated class or an elective, is always going to be about and centered in the gospel. And so we have this opportunity, this ability now, unlike before, to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. It's to make your faith alive. People often ask me why I have a skeleton in my, in my office. I get more questions about that than I think anything else of late. People are leaving, Pastor, why is there a skeleton in your closet? Well, if you will, we can use the skeleton as, a, as, a, as an example right now. That skeleton doesn't have anything on it. The picture is something that is dead that needs flesh and life. And so if you want to, you can picture the skeleton as what you were before God saved you. And now that you're saved, that skeleton is going to have flesh and veins and muscles and clothing. And you're going to live in the reality of that new body, that newness of life. Remember, you've been born again. You remember, well, you probably don't remember being born. Maybe some of you do, I don't know. But nonetheless, when you were born, you were born into a newness of life. You, You were a new human being, if you will. The same is true for us as believers. And so if I put muscles and organs and veins and a brain and a heart in the skeleton it will, be, it will come alive. And it will be able to do things that you would anticipate that a now living being would be able to do. It could eat, it could drink, it could talk, it could speak, it could drive a car, it could go to school, it could do all sorts of things that it couldn't do before. And so Paul has that same expectation living in the context of this now vivified empowered life. And so here we see Paul calling us to this. Peter does the same thing. Peter calls believers to live in a vivified way, if you will. Turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter captures the idea of vivification 
And, and I think the distinction is important. I, I, I said that the title of my sermon is A Vivification-Driven Life. I'm, I'm playing against Rick Warren's purpose-driven life. I hope you caught that. I thought that was pretty clever when I was sitting at my desk. I guess perhaps not as clever as I thought. I don't know. But nonetheless, for Rick Warren, what compels you to move forward is your purpose, your own personal ambitions, your desires, your goals, the things that you want. You incorporate them into your life, and that gives you purpose, and that moves you forward. That's your, that's, that's what, that's your drive. That's not what Scripture says. And if you have the book, you might as well just pitch it because it's worthless. It's not the gospel. What moves us forward is what has taken place to us in our salvation. Peter makes that abundantly clear here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Now, there's that word knowledge. We're going to see that word in verse 10 of Colossians chapter 3. It's a very important word, and we'll talk about that more in, in due course. But Peter here writing says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So peace is multiplied, grace is amplified as we know more about Jesus Christ. As we know more about Jesus Christ, we come to the realization of something in verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's a vivification. All right? Through the true knowledge. Again, there's that word knowledge. Not how you feel, not what you've heard in the context of hearing some voice, but rather through an understanding of God's word. That's important. A true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Excellence. Look at verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now, he, when, he, when, he, when he does this, he doesn't just leave, leave you as a hollow shell. But he rather amplifies the wonder of your salvation, which is already so great, so great that the angels in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and through 12 are wondering about it. They're like overwhelmed by it. What is this? For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Not that you become little gods like the Mormons teach and the Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults, but rather that you then live out the manifestation of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So that means your life is going to be different. You now are not in that. You are no longer, isn't it wonderful how the Bible works? You're no longer Colossians 3, 6, and 7, no longer a son of disobedience. It all works together. But rather you've been changed and transformed. You're now living in the context of this vivification. Vivification moves you past what the world does. Corruption, the lust of the flesh, and pride of life, and things of that nature. Now, look at verse 5. Because you've been vivified, because vivification is a reality in your life, now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, because who wouldn't want to? Right? I mean, how can you not want to? Applying all diligence 
in your faith, now faith is important there, it's, the, it's what is in relationship to our connection to Jesus Christ, it's the gift of faith given to us by God, and so we're taking that gift and we're using it as the fertile soil from which now springs up these vivification plants, if you will. Moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are stagnant, no, are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that, look at that phrase again, true knowledge. So one who truly knows Jesus Christ is going to have some demonstration of the reality of these virtues in his life because they are the very virtues that Jesus Christ possessed in full, in total. Remember, you're now a partaker of the divine nature. Go back up. That is vivification. The Holy Spirit now living within you, working within you, is amplifying the presence of these virtues in your life because he cannot do anything but that. That's how the Holy Spirit works. So for Paul, go back to Colossians. Look what's going on. We're gonna, this, is, this, is, this is really quite amazing. This is good stuff. This is, this is how you deal with the present tone and tenor of evangelicalism today. They have so missed the mark on this. This is the answer to what, to, to what they perceive is ailing the church right now. You want to solve the problems of social injustice? You want to solve the problems of racism and prejudice? You want to get your arms around that? Then you walk them all back into Colossians 3, 9, and 10, and, first, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Because what Paul and Peter are both saying is that those who are vivified, and that is an, it, it's axiomatic, it happens when you're saved, who are living out, in the, living out their life in the context of a sanctification that means to be set apart, the set apart comes from the different lifestyle that we live, you will then be dealing with people who are going to treat other people differently. It's a gospel problem. And until you deal with the heart, you're not going to fix anything. I don't care what theory you use. It's a heart issue. Oh, you may temporarily salve the wound. You may put a Band-Aid on it that's, that, that staunches the bleeding for a short moment, but it's not going to heal the underlying canker, the problem that's giving rise to the, to the issue. And so for Paul, he looks at the, at the reality of this. Now, in verse 10, he says, and have it put on the new self, which is or who is being renewed to a true knowledge. Where did you see that word true knowledge before? Second Peter. It's right there. And this knowledge goes back into understanding who Jesus Christ is. The gospel out of which, when I have a greater understanding about it, the grace and peace in my life is multiplied. So even though I have been mistreated by someone, even though I have been treated in a discriminatory manner or prejudicially or by a racist, 
I am not going to dwell on that, but I am going to rather reflect on the peace and the grace that is being multiplied to me. I'm going to understand that I'm being mistreated by people who are sinners and who need Jesus Christ. And rather than beating them over the head with my emotional response to their treatment of me, I'm going to give them Jesus Christ. That is the answer. And until we get our heads around that, we're going to have the same problem. You've got guys walking around here like Russell Moore and David Platt and Matt Chandler and a whole host of them who aren't even talking about this, but talking about changing the way we treat people. No one's going to treat anyone different until God changes them. And they need to talk about that more. The problem in the church is that we've not been talking about a vivification-driven life. We've been talking about a purpose-driven life. I bet people have read, read that book more than they've read the Bible. Shame on them. Now, look, it only gets better. Peter speaks to the idea of adding. So the, the, the qualitative manifestation of vivification is the growing into the reality of our new identity. So this newness of life, this renewal is qualitative. It's objectively verifiable. It's not just a feeling that you have. Rather, it is a reality within you playing itself out demonstrably in the way that you live and act with other people. That's why Paul will then say what he does in verse 11, because this renewal then breaks down the barriers that are part and parcel of a fallen world. We no longer categorize people in the, on the basis of how the world views them or what they have done. Rather, I understand who they are in Jesus Christ and can anticipate that they are going to treat me in a manner that's consistent with their vivification, and they can anticipate the same from me. That's what's going on here. I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is remarkable. Now, what's, what's unique about this is, is in terms of understanding of, of how this plays into sanctification. As I noted, vivification is an aspect of our progressive sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in questions 35 and 36 defines sanctification as this. The question is, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. All right? Now, that, of course, would make sense and does make sense because the underlying predicate for Paul's argument in verse 10 is found, wait for it, my favorite verse, Colossians 2.11. It's, it's the hinge on which the epistle turns because what happens is this. All, all of nature abhors a vacuum, right? Not a vacuum cleaner, but, but the absence of anything qualitative. There's a funny Gary Larson cartoon where there's a vacuum roaming through a forest and all the animals are hissing at it. And, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> and 2.11, <laughs> look at this. 
And so look what happens. And in him, Colossians 2.11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, God sovereignly doing this, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So look, when, when you're saved, based upon what Christ has done on the cross, your old man is cut out. It's gone. The, 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 the imagery used by Paul is very vivid. It is. We all know what circumcision is. It, there's a cutting away. So, in the context of what happens to me when God saves me, there is a cutting out of me, that which was of the flesh. Let's call it the old man, if you will. That is taken out. But that's not left empty. You're not just a husk that's empty now, that you're responsible for filling by your, all, all your good works. No, you are now giving something new. You are giving a new mind, a new heart. The heart of stone has been taken away. A heart of flesh has been given. You now live within the context of the reality of that transforming work that God has wrought in you. You have been born again. Okay? So for Paul then, the the filling of the vacuum is taking place The absence of the old is filled in 310 by you having a new man given to you. You don't create the new man, God creates it. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so that's why Paul will say what he says in verse 10 and have put on the new self. Basically meaning living in the reality, the qualitative reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. And that this renewal, this new man, grows just like an infant would grow. Just as a newborn child over time will develop height and weight and muscle development and skeletal structure and strength and a mind and grow up into a mature adult, so too do we as believers in Christ. Indeed, when we don't do that, there is a problem. Paul goes to the Corinthians and said, I came prepared to give you meat, but I have to give you milk. Something's wrong here. You're not living in the context of your vivification. What's happening here? Now, there are a lot of things that can impede our growth. Vivification can be stunted by the presence of unrepented sin in the life, of chasing after those things that the Scripture describes as being aspects of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. You're not living out the context of that fruit that is part and parcel of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Perhaps there's a sin in your life that is grieving the Holy Spirit, You have stifled that in your life by your unrepented sin and your willingness to engage in those things. But the standard, the baseline in the Bible for a Christian is that there is going to be a demonstration of the reality of your conversion. It's how we distinguish the sheep from the goats. In fact, there's some stern warnings in Scripture about people who are pretenders, people who just play the game, think they're doing the thing that they need to do to get saved. 
Lord, Lord, did we not do great things? Whenever you see an amplification of a name twice, it's a loving connection. Lord, Lord, I, I love you. I, I went to church every Sunday. I taught Sunday school for 45 years. I, I gave, I tithed religiously. It was always exactly 10%, even though that's not what it means. It was always exactly 10%. It, I did all these things. I, Lord, Lord, that loving. You see the similar expression when Christ is talking to, to Mary and Martha. Martha, Martha. It's a loving expression to her. Come on, Martha. What are you doing? Mary knows the better part. So, for Paul, this vacuum is filled with the newness of life given to us by the Holy Spirit, which now plays itself out in the reality of what we're doing. God's grace amplified, peace multiplied. And Paul ties all together now some of the loose ends that came out of chapter 2 with regard to the result of this cutting away. Of course, Paul uses this very vivid picture of the clothing metaphor, taking off the old, putting on the new, no longer living in the oldness of flesh, living in the newness of flesh, to show the dramatic change that's wrought in us. It's interesting, too, that in this verse, in verse 10, Paul uses the aorist tense when he talks about the idea of this activity, this putting on, that indicates that taking off and putting on is an event that has already occurred in the life of a believer. God has done it. You're just living in the reality of what he has done. So, since this new man has been created within us, at the time of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and it has occurred, and the old flesh has been cut away by Christ, there is anticipated in an almost mathematically precise way that there is going to be a qualitative change of identity which results in a different way of living and thinking and acting as the redeemed of God. Look at Romans with me. Romans 6.6. 6. Look, let's go back to verse 5, Romans 6, 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, that's verse 12, that's Colossians 3, 12, or 2, 12, okay? Remember the baptism picture? Paul, Paul reaching into that metaphor again here. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, Knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to what? Sin. Look at verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. Freed from sin. So, um, that, that demonstrates the reality of what's going on here. Look at Ephesians 4.24 with me. Ephesians 4.24, using God's word to understand God's word. Go back to verse 22 in Ephesians 4. Very interesting that these passages are very parallel. Again, this is the idea of vivification. 
that in reference to your former manner of life, Ephesians 4.22, you lay aside the old self. You live in the reality of who you are now in the newness of Jesus Christ, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new humanity, the qualitative new identity and new capacities, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The consequence of that is played out then in what Paul says in verse 25. Therefore, if that's true, the same can be said in Colossians chapter 3. Paul does the same thing in here in 425. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let sin, the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. These are the quali- qualitative demonstrations of the new humanity that is yours in Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 10. Verse 5. Well, let's go back to 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not, we, we do not war according to the flesh, right? We're, we're, we're still here in this body, but we have this new humanity, this new nature. And so we now don't war in accordance with that. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. The flesh had no desire to engage in warfare with anything of the world, but rather divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That's, that's the qualitative vivification, if you will, playing out. Verse 5, one of the aspects of a vivified life, of vivification, is what we do with the power that we now have, one of which is to be engaged with our minds based upon what God has told us in his word to do what we see in verse 5. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against, there's that word knowledge again, against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So what does that mean? Does that mean that all day long you have to take every single thought that you have captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ? No. What Paul's talking about here is that when you're engaged in an argument or conversation and ideas that are coming across from the world, you are taking those ideas captive to the Word of God. That's what that's about. If you look at it in the context of what's being discussed there, you'll see that. It wouldn't make any sense otherwise. Paul's talking about being engaged with culture, with the ideas, the, the battle of, with sin, our ability to be engaged in a very meaningful way, a very measurable way with the ideas that are being foisted upon us by the world. Even though I'm still robed in this fall, fallen flesh, I've been given a new nature that I can now use to express the ideas that are consistent with a knowledge of God which is predicated upon all that it contains relative to how we live and how we act and how we think and the things we do and don't do. And indeed, our weapons are not, not temporal, but they're, they're, they're spiritual. They're divinely powerful. That goes back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. I'm a partaker of the divine nature. It would only make sense that Paul would say that. 
And because of that, then I do something. I destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Social justice, critical race theory, all of this gay Christianity, carnal Christian, all of it. I take all of those ideas, I take every one of them captive to the obedience of Christ. I look at them within the framework of the gospel and I resolve all of the problems that they pose within the framework of the gospel and it's the only thing that I'm allowed to do as one of God's redeemed. I don't have permission to use critical race theory. I don't have permission to use social justice theory. I don't have permission to use anything that's in the context of fallen secular humanism. I frame everything within the confines and structure of God. God's word, always, every single time. It says every thought, every idea captive to the word of God. That's what I do. So for Paul, this vivification thing is a big deal. It's a big, big deal. And so we'll leave off there. And we'll pick up next week as we move into the balance of verse 10 and verse 11 when we talk about the idea of how this renewal continues to grow and to develop, unpackaging what this word knowledge means. But friends, this this issue of being in Christ and united with Christ is of paramount importance. It impacts everything we do, how we think, what we say, how we act and live. It is the power of the gospel. It's the gospel for real life. It's what transforming grace does to us. It really changes us. It really does. And so I want to challenge you to think about the issues that we face in today's world in the context of a life that is driven by vivification and the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. I trust that you're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you're looking to Him alone as the author and finisher of your faith, and that you're living vitally. And if you're not, then he will forgive you. You can call upon his name. You can ask him to forgive you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. Our Savior is gracious and patient, and he's long-suffering. But the challenge to us is to begin to frame our lives back within the context of what God's Word says. And if we do this, then we're going to have a huge impact on a lot of different things rather than buying into what's being sold in secular humanism and elsewhere. Progressive Christianity, deconstructionism, all of it fails. The gospel thrives. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the exhortation that we have from it to live in the, in the reality of our, new, of our newness of life, our conversion. Forgive us for not doing that. Encourage us. Make us bold, cause us to be light and salt, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.